Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. It's a retold episode. My name is Brian, and these retold episodes are repostings of old episodes uh, for one reason or another. Typically, it's because something is in the news, something has happened, or maybe we have been talking about that subject on the show again, and we want to go back in the catalog and make it easy for you to find reference material. Uh, that is the case this week. The You probably heard the final surviving member of Leonard Skinner, uh, passed on to the next life, uh, Gary Rossington. He died um, on March the 5th. And Rossington is the guitar solo in Freebird. So, I mean, if there is any indelible mark on rock and roll, uh, that is it. I, I don't think there's very many people who have, with their instrument, made quite the impact um, he's probably got to be in that list of the top 15, right? Uh, um, in terms of memorable, famous guitar solos that people hold dear and get excited about. And that's Gary Rossington. Uh, so he was 71. Interesting dude. I don't know how much you know about Gary Rossington, but he was, he, you know, they went to high school together, a bunch of the guys in Skinnerd, and end up dropping out of high school to play in this band. Um, he was a in a single parent household. He his mom was a big baseball fan. He thought he would be a baseball player. Um, wanted to play for the New York Yankees. Uh, famously said that he heard the Rolling Stones when he was a young teenager, and it changed the trajectory of his life. But he did actually meet some of the other guys in Leonard Skinner through playing baseball with him. So one thing leads to another. Um, but Rossington is known for this his Les Paul. Do you know the, the 1959 Gibson Les Paul? If you've seen him play, you might be thinking about it. Uh, he said he actually purchased it from a woman whose boyfriend had had left her and left the guitar. I I have a bike that I got the same way. <laughs> Literally, my favorite, I have like four bicycles. But the one I ride the most, the one that can take a whipping and keep on ticking is the one that I went to this lady's house from an ad my wife found on the internet, and she's like, oh, yeah, it's back there against the back fence. He just left it. So take it before he gets back. And it's it's done me very well. Um, the other thing, you know, so Rossington, yes, he played the guitar on Freebird. He also played the guitar on Tuesday's Gone. Now, because of my age, that guitar solo is marked in my brain as the opening to Happy Gilmore, which I realize is probably not okay. But it makes me really happy every time I hear it and I think about Happy's grandmother wearing the Gene Simmons tongue mask, the kiss mask. Remember that scene? Yeah, that's that's clearly a product of my age. There you go. Um, also, Rosington, of course, one of the survivors of the plane crash. And that brings us to what we talked about on the show all the way back on episode 13. And uh, this is a, a pretty well known episode of this show. There's there's a chance that if you uh, came to the show uh, early on, or really at any time, you maybe heard this among the first episodes that you heard of the show. Um, but if you're new to the show and you haven't gone into the back catalog, you probably haven't heard this because it goes all the way back in August of 2020. It, you know, Murdoch does a great job in this episode of breaking down the facts of the plane crash, and you get to hear some of our personal Leonard Skinner connections and stories, as you always do. Um, but R.I.P. Gary Rosington, um, what a band, what a guy, what a guitar player, 
and uh, what a mark he left. And now, without further ado, episode 13 of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We're retelling it right now. This is Leonard Skinnerd versus The Big Blue Sky. I've got a rock and roll bedtime story. This one comes from the uh, suggestion box. You can do that yep. too. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Let us know if there's a, a specific story that you've like always kind of heard about, but you never really knew the details and we'll do the research for you. Uh, today's was a, is a popular one. We've gotten quite a few notes about this and it has to do with, could you call them the greatest Southern rock band? Is that allowed? Like, I don't think that they get to have that because I think the Allman Brothers might have that that championship belt. I feel like the Allman Brothers are what you and I would say, but I feel like if you just walked into a Long John Silver's and asked Carl at table four, he would tell you Leonard Skinner. I bet you if you walked into a Long John Silver's and walked up to Carl and said, hey man, when you die, what song do you want played at your funeral? And they're going to either he's say gonna, Stairway to Heaven or Freebird. He's not going to say Ramblin' Man. That's all I'm saying. No. He's not no. going to say Melissa. Because when I was a kid, I heard everyone say those things. And that's kind of were gateways for me to understand what those songs were. They're both over seven minutes long. And I think the first time I ever really was aware of Leonard Skinner was hearing people yell Freebird. Yep. As a joke, <laughs> like you know, you're at like a community concert at the HYR baseball park, and somebody's like, "Play Freebird," the you know the church band. Like yeah. that is how I heard about Freebird. I grew up where I could hear a they they called it AO for, for people don't know it's called AOR radios album oriented rock radio. So I heard the other Skinnerd songs. So. I liked Leonard Skinner, and I'm unabashedly not ashamed to say that I still, you know, I've got that thing on Spotify where it's like the on repeat playlist and I'm like listening to some new thing, you know, like some new song or whatever. And all of a sudden I hear, don't ask me no questions and I won't tell you no lies. Skinner's songs are great to sing to. They have great melodies. Skinner right. karaoke, which song do you do? I guess I do Sweet Home Alabama because people do that when they're hammered. Uh, but I went to Tennessee and they didn't say Sweet Home Alabama. I, I would do That Smell. Which is a terrific transition. Uh, this is a brand new number. It's going to be out on, on a new album. be out in September. It's called That Smell. October 19th, 1977. Leonard Skinner released Street Survivors, and that smell was the first single. You know what that song's about? It's songs about death. You ever seen the original cover of Street Survivors, Brian? They're all engulfed in flames. Three days later, the lead singer and the guitar player and the guitar player's sister are dead. So as a kid, my sit like remember my sister left all those cool records. She left that Skinnerd record, the original pressing, because they had to go back and take that cover off. Oh man. So before we get to the main attraction of this story, I always like to set the scene so we know where we are in the career of a band, especially a band who was as massive and big so we can really understand the scope here. 
uh, a band like Leonard Skinner. So let's do that real quickly. Yeah, sure. So um, Ronnie Van Zant and Gary Rossington were, they actually were friends like as kids they played on baseball teams and eventually you know they ended up playing in a band together um late 60s 69 they were called the one percent eventually they changed their name because they wanted to mock their pe teacher uh who apparently was a jerk and wasn't cool with them because they had long hair and his name was leonard skinnard if you were going to name a band after your least favorite teacher what would the name of your band be curtis davenport mine would be clyde miller Curtis Davenport with opening act Clyde Miller this weekend at the Speedway. I want to be the Curtis Davenport Five. Anyway, they started, you know, they they went out and they became this really big band. They're in Jacksonville is really sort of where they're... Can you talk about the fact that they're not from Alabama? Yeah, man. They're not from Alabama. No. Um, (laughs) Does Alabama feel like they deserve some some royalties or something? Like, this feels a little disingenuous. What was really interesting that I thought was amazing is that they went to Muscle Shoals and recorded a record in 71. And, you know, man, it it, it didn't work. It did put them on the map somewhat. Um, discovered by Al Cooper, which is a yeah. part of their history that I didn't know. The yeah. Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And I got a shout out to Blood, Sweat, and Tears because that was my dad's favorite band in high school. He was a big Blood, Sweat, and Tears fan. And I only knew who they were because I remember asking my dad when I got into music and he was in the, he was a, a Christian church minister and he would show me the oldie station. And I realized like, oh, dad had a past where like he used to really be into rock and roll. And I was like, dad, what was your favorite band in high school? And he loved, he loved two bands that loved Leonard Skinner. He loved Blood, Sweat, and Tears and The Who. Yeah. And you know their guitar player, Ed King? Do you know what band he was in? Incense and Peppermints. Oh, Strawberry Alarm Clock. Yeah, yeah. It's totally weird. (laughs) So So they end up, I didn't realize either, so they're discovered by Cooper, and then they end up on tour pretty quickly with The Who. Yeah. And their first record was called Pronounce Leonard Skinner with the actual phonetic spelling and that came out in 73 and isn't uh sold a million records they, they become a very big band very very quickly 73 our story takes place in 77 over the next four years they put out a couple a few albums and they're they're household names really yeah that first record has Freebird on it man i mean they're unbelievable I, a debut record you put out one of the large what, what the second biggest rock you know to your point the second biggest rock song of all time basically yeah people had to wait four records to get Stairway to Heaven from Zeppelin. They just came straight out. <laughs> so, but let's let's talk about this because a lot of people don't know really what happened. And it's more tragic than you really could imagine. This bulletin just into WMJS Radio. The Federal Aviation Administration reports that a plane carrying 25 persons crashed tonight in southwest Mississippi. Among those aboard, the Leonard Skinner Rock Group. The plane, a twin-engine prop model, went down in the southwestern corner of Mississippi, not far from the Louisiana line. Authorities say access to the heavily wooded, swampy area is very difficult. Record industry spokesman said this was one of the top five rock groups in the country. Leonard Skinner. It 
Pop's latest album, Street Survivors, had already gone gold after its release this week. So here's the first thing that I found out. There was another band that looked at this plane. It was a Conair CV240 called Aerosmith. And they looked at this plane for their 1977 tour. And they backed out because, quote, neither the plane or crew were up to their standards. In fact, Aerosmith's chief of flight operations told of observing the pilot and co-pilot who both died in the Skinner plane crash were sharing a bottle of Jack Daniels when they came to inspect the plane. History has a way of justifying things, right? So clearly you hear that story and you're like, man, Aerosmith and their team totally on top of it. But let's just say that this plane crash didn't happen. What would be the narrative we would hear through rock and roll history? We would hear yeah. that they had a guy who was like, I don't know. Uh, I think we're a little too good for that plane. So, yeah. you know, that's why you. I always say, I like to play the game, who in your life would you hire as your manager if you suddenly became an overnight sensation? Because you've got to have somebody who can stand up and live through that decision, whether or not it makes them a hero or a villain. Imagine the record, right, with the flames so that's super spooky so they were leaving greenville south carolina and they were going to baton rouge to play at lsu they had it sold out they were playing on campus this was the last flight that they were going to take on that airplane it's very clear after watching interviews from people that survived that plane crash they all knew that that plane had problems. Within a week before the plane crash, they were flying and one of the engines went out and shot fire. They saw it. <laughs> and so they're in the middle of a tour. What do they do? There really was a conversation about grounding the plane. And apparently Ronnie Van Zant didn't want to ground the plane and cancel shows. Sadly, I can relate to this. Like, I know it's messed up, but I can relate to this because we've all had a car where we're like, I don't know. It's probably fine that there's fire coming out of the tailpipe, right? Like this, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll all work out. They were going to wait and land this plane in Baton Rouge, play the last gig, get that fixed and get a Learjet. Steve Gaines was the guitar player who died in the plane crash. So his sister, Cassie, was a backup singer, and she was so spooked out about this plane for like that week or so before the crash, she was riding in the equipment truck and wouldn't ride in the plane. Oh, man. But that night, Ronnie Van Zant convinced her to get on the plane. Wow. Jojo Billingsley was a backup singer and was not on the flight because basically it was rehab. It was interesting how, how old it was, like reading about it. Like it said, under medical care for drug and alcohol use, like basically <laughs> like it was rehab, right? Jojo had a dream about a plane crash and begged Alan Collins in the band not to get on the plane. Oh, man. Everyone on that plane was aware that they were on a plane that had mechanical problems. They all knew it. And they all made a decision. There, I, I saw an interview with a roadie, a couple different people, and they were like, you know what? We all made a decision to get on that plane. And what do you do? You're working. You get on the plane. What happened in the plane 
is fuel was getting sucked into the engines and making this awful noise like, oh, and then the plane's like going like it's going like left and right. Like it's it's moving around. The first right engine quits. So after the right engine goes out two minutes later, the second engine goes out. So even though both engines go out, Gene Howard, who's the head of security, said that there was an eight horsepower engine that was in the very back of the plane, this little tiny engine, and it gave the pilots like hydraulic power where they could kind of guide it a little bit. And then it stopped working too. They've got to figure out where to go. And so they wanted to land in a field. Everyone was strapped in a seat except Ronnie Van Zandt, who was on the floor, who had taken sleeping pills because he was hung over. Gene, his friend, the security guard, said he slapped him in the face and put him in a seat and put a seatbelt on him. There's chaos. They went to the cockpit and started yelling at the pilots. Um, <laughs> that's that's when you know you got a plane full of rock and rollers, right? Like if, if you uh, and I are on a plane and it starts to go, I'm I am doing all the stuff they tell me at the beginning of the flight with the oxygen mask and such, and then I'm just waiting for the instructions. I'm not going to the cockpit because I don't know anything about flying a plane. But right. I guess when you've been partying with the pilot, it, it just all of the playing fields are level and you can just walk in and go, bro, what the heck's going on, man? Yeah. The head of security said that he went up and grabbed the pilot and he said, you're going to land this plane and you better land it because as soon as I, we get on the ground, I'm going to kill you with my bare hands. That's like what he told the pilot. It doesn't seem like the, the right pep talk. I feel like there's a different pep talk. Brian, when they left Greenville, South Carolina on the manifest they said they had four hours of fuel after it was over and they did the investigation they ran out of gas man instead of hitting that the field they were trying to get to they made a big 180 and i believe it was artemis pile that said that at some point there you know they start to descend and he said it was like hundreds of baseball bats were hitting the plane it's trees there's falling into trees while they're going into the trees at some point the the wings come off eventually front of the plane hits a tree and the plane breaks in half oh my god in the front of the plane are the two pilots the pilot and co-pilot who died ronnie van zant who died steve gaines the guitar player died and his sister died their head of security there was ronnie's childhood friend ended up underneath the fuselage of the plane Ugh. so someone saw the plane go down and called the volunteer fire department because it was in gillsburg mississippi do you know where that is? I don't. I don't either. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, man. They called the uh, volunteer fire department. They're the first people on the scene. And then there's helicopters. So then the helicopters are, they have lights. So that's kind of how they started to see it. But the volunteer fire guy, his name was Jamie Wall. And he was the first guy on it. And he was walk. he got to the plane and he almost tripped over a body and then realized that he was alive. Small town, they're volunteer firefighters. They just get the call that there is a plane that has crashed in a field. They have no context, right? Right. And then he's the one that noticed that the plane was upside down. And that, so there's basically this big, large crack and it's upside down. 
and he started to feel inside and he poked someone in the eyeball and heard him and realized that that person was alive. Also doesn't seem like protocol to just go poking around in the upside down plane. That gentleman's name was Mark Howard and he was the lighting engineer and he had been on tour with him. I mean, the whole time. The people that survived this had really terrible injuries. And you can tell by listening to them talk that it is a PTSD, like terrible, awful thing that they had to go through. And some of them didn't wake up. You know, they woke up in a hospital two weeks later. So Gene, who's the head of security, he was since he was underneath the plane, when the volunteer fire department guy gets him, he realizes he's burning. He's like on fire. And the reason he's on fire isn't the fuel. It was a flare. And the flare went off and it went on his wrist and it put holes in his wrist and then in his head and then melted his eye. Oh, my Lord. Oh, so he was unconscious. And it was two weeks later when they got him out of the hospital and said, we're going to go see Ronnie. And he thought he was going to his house. And they took him to the cemetery. He had no clue. So while all this is happening, like concurrently at the same time, Artemis Pyle, there's a stagehand named Kenny Pedlin, and then Mark Franks, who I mentioned, the roadie, they all set out on foot trying to find help. And they're pitch dark. They're like walking in different, like a different direction from the helicopter and the people and the creek and where everyone's coming from. Eventually, they see a guy who's from an adjoining property. His name is Bobby McDaniel. And he stayed, helped pull bodies from the plane. These people in the neighborhood, one by one, show up with trucks and take them one by one to the hospital. And they have no idea who they're taking to the hospital. Wow. At all. It was a couple hours later and Bobby McDaniel, who owned the land that was right next to it, a younger guy came up to him and said, man, do you know that's Leonard Skinner? And he had no clue. It was a 500-foot path that went through the tops of those trees. Those pilots didn't look at the gas gauges. It's the pilot's fault. I just want to clearly establish, this had to do with bad pilots more than it had to do with mechanical failure, even though the plane was in bad shape? Yeah, they weren't watching the fuel. They could have, if they had been watching, the investigators said that if they had paid better attention to the fuel, they would have noticed that they were losing fuel faster and they could have went to another airport quicker. So as soon as they ran out of gas, McCann Airport was the closest airport. And I I looked that up and I forget where that is, but that was, so they were trying to make a 180 to get around there and they never could make it. Like they were trying to get there and they were like, okay, now we're going to go to the field. And then they went through the trees. We're starting to lose fuel. We didn't notice it in time. And now the plane is going down. Yeah. Mark Franks, who I mentioned was the roadie, he went on foot with Artemis Pyle after the plane crashed. He went back four years later because he wanted to meet all the people that lived around there because he wanted to thank them all because those people saved their lives. And they didn't know who they were. Gene, however, the head of security that was friends with Ronnie as a kid, didn't go back for 40 years. So he went back when they had a a 40-year anniversary. And people go there. There's like a tree where people carve their name into it and everything like that. There's something to be said for being young, dumb, and stupid, right? Like, I think back at even 
decisions that I made where I thought, yeah, it won't hurt this time, right? Well, we're just going to do it one more time. I mean, I get it, but it's one of those things where as you get older, you start to look and go, there's, there's, there is a chance we end up being Leonard Skinner in the woods instead of Leonard Skinner in the sky. And you make that choice. But when you're young and you are at the top of a career and you are about to go play for 10,000 people at LSU and you're almost done, you just, you cut the corner. Like it's just, it's, I think it's tragic and sad because it partly because like it's so unexceptional. I was 13 when this band got back together without Ronnie Van Zandt. And apparently the survivors took a blood oath that they would never, ever, ever use that band's name ever again to make any money. So, so when 10 years later, after this plane crash, when there was this decision, let's get the band back together, it was not a universally approved situation oh. as, as, as it is right now that it's now 2020 and Artemis Pyle has made a movie about it. Basically. Oh, I mean, God. he's made a movie about their plane crash, um, which if you think about it, um, definitely kind of, it has a smell. Like if you want to know what that smell smells like, well, it smells like that movie. <laughs> um, and I watched the trailer. It's garbage. And the other thing that's amazing about that band is that last year they made the decision not to fly the Confederate flag behind when they played. So let me ask you a couple of questions here. You you grew up in rural Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you can relate. You're on your property one night. It's late. You hear a crash on the other side of the woods. Yeah. Yeah. You start walking that way. There's some sort of commotion. Do you start pulling bodies out of a plane? Yeah. You go and help people. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Okay. 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 Second question. You are in a plane crash. You survive. You make a blood oath to never use that band name to make money again. And then you're broke 10 years later. (laughs) Do you restart the band? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you're a, if you're a musician, this is the second most famous rock and roll plane crash. Would you say it? It it definitely is. I, I will say that, the fact that Waylon Jennings was a decision away from being on the flight that Buddy Holly died in is unbelievable. He was, you know, he was one of the crickets. Like Waylon Jennings used to play with Buddy Holly. That is crazy. So, yeah. what, what are the other plane crashes forgotten to history? Are there other rock and roll plane crashes? Otis Redding. Yeah, no one thinks about Otis. He he died in a plane crash and didn't get to see that he had a, a number one record. Sitting on the dock of the bay went number one after he was dead. Wow. That is yeah. a forgotten rock and roll plane crash. Yeah. Hold so, on. I have to tell one more Skinner story I just remembered. <laughs> one more. It, it's worth it, I promise. So okay. I, I went to high school in Hot Springs, Arkansas in the late 90s. There was a band in my senior class made up of three guys. And they played like instrumental white boy funk. They were three very white dudes and they were not great, but they were called sugar daddy S H U G G A. And 
they would, because it was Hot Springs, Arkansas, which is a tourist town in the middle of the state on five lakes, so it's mostly tourism, uh, there would be little docks and bars along any of those five lakes that would hire bands to play. And there just weren't, it was pretty slim pickings. So they would hire sugar daddy, even though they weren't legally allowed to be in the bar. Well, the big news, my senior year of high school was that sugar daddy got a gig opening at one of these bars for Leonard Skinner. Now, we were very excited about the fact that Leonard Skinner was coming to town and that our friends were going to get to play with him. We couldn't, none of us could go to the show because we were all too young. And we, so we all meet up like the next week and we're like, tell us what it was like. And the three guys are like, it was very disappointing. <laughs> um, first of all, did you know that there's two touring versions of Leonard Skinner? And apparently there is a split where two people have access to the name. Yes. One of them is like only Artemis Pyle or something. Artemis. And so it was Artemis's version of Leonard Skinner that played this bar with Sugar Daddy. And I guess it wasn't great. <laughs> yeah. Artemis Pyle came back in my life a few years later, a few decades later, unfortunately, in uh, a story I would also title How I Got Fired from Radio, which is I started working on a putting together a classic rock music festival with a promoter who didn't really know what he was doing. And the promoter kept pitching to me, even though the lineup kept changing and everything kept falling apart. He was like, but I tell you, man, we got Artemis Pyle. He's going to open the show yeah. he on the plane. And uh, you know what? That music festival will never happen and i don't work in radio anymore so <laughs> remember if you want to get involved in the show if you've got a story you want to suggest to us that maybe we should research and talk about you can do that easily by uh, emailing us at we are the story guys at gmail.com and check out we are the story guys.com for everything we have going on and remember there's one thing we like to leave you with every time we uh finish up a show and that is keep telling stories rock and roll bedtime stories is a story guys production the show is produced and edited by brian and Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright 2020. Boy, have we got stories productions. All rights reserved.